I get the question about soy from 90% of the people that I see who have a diagnosis of breast cancer. It's the myth that won't die as we know, and there's so much evidence behind its benefits. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 209. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Welcome back, veggie lovers, to another episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. Today, I have with me brilliant sisters who are also both oncologists, super smart, super passionate, dedicated, amazingly productive. We have an excellent conversation. But before I tell you more about them, I want to remind you that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment by a healthcare professional. So if you have concerns about you or your child's eating, nutrition, growth, please consult a doctor. Okay, so I have Dr. Shireen Kassam and Dr. Zara Kassam. Like I said, they are sisters. They've written an amazing book. Dr. Shireen Kassam is a consultant hematologist and honorary senior lecturer at King's College Hospital, London, with a special interest in the treatment of lymphoma. She is also a visiting professor at Winchester University, Hampshire, where she has developed and facilitates the UK's first university-based course on plant-based nutrition. She is passionate about promoting plant-based nutrition for the prevention and reversal of chronic disease and for maintaining optimal health after treatment for cancer. In 2019, she became certified as a lifestyle medicine physician and is also a CHIP facilitator. Shireen founded Plant-Based Health Professionals UK in 2018, and in January 2021, she co-founded and launched the UK's first regulated plant-based lifestyle medicine healthcare service, Plant-Based Health Online. Her first book, Eating Plant-Based, Scientific Answers to Nutrition Questions, is co-authored with her sister, Zara, and was published in January of 2022. So Dr. Zara Kassam received her medical degree from the Imperial College of Science, Technology, and Medicine in 1995, completed her specialist training in clinical oncology in the UK, followed by three years of clinical research and fellowship training at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center in Canada, with a master's in clinical epidemiology at the University of Toronto. Her areas of clinical practice are in gastrointestinal and breast cancers. A few years ago, Zara discovered the significant body of evidence demonstrating the benefits of nutrition in the prevention and management of chronic diseases, not taught at any stage of her medical training. She is certified as a lifestyle medicine physician with American Board of Lifestyle Medicine and has completed the eCornell certification in plant-based nutrition and the plant-based nutrition course at the University of Winchester. Zara co-founded Plant-Based Canada, a nonprofit organization in 2019 with the goal of educating the public and health professionals on the evidence-based benefits of plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. In this interview, we talk about their plant-based journeys, how relevant plant-based nutrition is to their specialties, why they wrote the book, Eating Plant-Based Scientific Answers to Nutrition Questions, some of the most common questions they get in each of their specialties, what question they wish more people were asking instead, what they were both surprised about when they were writing the book, and what they each think is the most compelling benefit for eating a plant-based diet. We also talk about their personal habits and their morning routines, and they leave us with some great advice for people that are still on the fence for 
about trying a plant-based diet. I think you'll really enjoy this episode and I hope that you will grab a copy to their book. The way that it's written is really helpful, especially if you're the kind of person that you get asked questions over and over again by friends and family and you're just not sure how to answer it. This is all evidence-based. They have 60 pages of references. It's very easy to read, very simple, and you can use it like a reference. You don't necessarily have to read it cover to cover. You can go through and read the sections that you feel that either you're struggling to understand or you're struggling to convey to other people or explain to other people. Again, that book is called Eating Plant-Based, Scientific Answers to Your Nutrition Questions. Now, without further ado, let's hear from Drs. Shireen and Zara Kassam. Zara and Shireen Kassam, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. Oh, hi, Dr. Yami. It's so good to have you both and congratulations on your new book. I'm so excited to talk about that. But before we get into that, I would love to know about each of your plant-based journeys, how you discovered plant-based nutrition and how it evolved. We'll start with Zara since you're the older sister. (laughs) Thank you. So you'll find that our stories are pretty similar anyway, but we um, started on our journey from perspective so about 10 years ago now it was we we'd been vegetarian for many years before that and about 10 years ago we realized that the egg and dairy industry was just as awful and it did not fit at all with our ethical um, beliefs and so we moved to being vegan very quickly um, in 2013 and at that point you know Shireen and I had been practicing in medicine for many years already and uh, we knew nothing about the health benefits of plant-based nutrition. But as we explored the vegan side of it, suddenly this whole world was blown up about the benefits of plant-based nutrition for individual health, for planetary health. And so that's how our knowledge came. And then we gradually built that up, incorporated it into our practice. And um, and that yeah, that's how we got into it. And Zara, did you feel that it was difficult for you to make the transition? You were already not eating meat, but was the dairy and the egg like a really big part of your diet and how you ate? It was actually, but I found for myself it wasn't difficult at all to make the transition because of the reason, because of my why. It was very difficult for me not to see the animals when I was looking at cheese or eggs and in the same way as meat. Once I knew there was no other alternative, no other way forward. How about you, Shireen? Yeah, so quite a similar journey, obviously, from vegetarian to veganism, really for the animal justice side of things. Um, But then since 2013, um, like Wazara, spent a lot of hours um, and time delving into the research behind um, the benefits for personal and more recently for planetary health for adopting a plant-based diet. And for where I am based in the UK, um, we're obviously the birthplace of the vegan society and there's some great climate active groups, but there wasn't a sort of health professional group that was advocating for healthy plant-based diet for the reasons that we know it's good. Um, And so that's where my journey led me after a long period of education to form a non-profit organisation called Plant-Based Health Professionals UK um, that provides um, education and advocacy on healthy plant-based diets. And similarly, um, Zara has formed Plant-Based Canada, which does the same for for Canada because there was that sort of gap in the advocacy market, as it were. Um, And so we've been um, building networks and resources that are specific and unique to our own healthcare systems, which do differ considerably to the US. Yes. Wow, that's amazing. Y'all are proactive accomplishers. You just get a lot of things done. That's really admirable. I'm curious about when, so you started from an ethical perspective, you knew, okay, now that I know what happens to animals when they're being used this way for food, I'm not going to be part of that anymore. Were you surprised to learn about the health benefits at that point, especially because in training, nobody ever talks about it? We can start with Shireen. Yeah, totally. It all came as completely new knowledge and rather embarrassing, you know, having been a a qualified doctor for 13 years already and, you know, seeing people and patients with conditions, illnesses that really not 
did not need to be there should we um, you know have all been supporting our patients to adopt a healthy diet and obviously other lifestyle um, uh, healthy lifestyle habits which sort of led us to this shared journey also to complete the lifestyle medicine um, certification from the International Board of Lifestyle Medicine sort of completing that um, broader picture um, but yeah um, we didn't we hadn't learnt we went to the same medical school in, in London actually and I don't think the syllabus had changed within the five-year gap um, between us um, and yeah I don't remember learning about the clinical application of nutrition in our everyday practice you know clearly we learn about the biochemical pathways and lots about nutritional deficiencies but clearly in the UK and also in, in Canada, those are not the predominant issues. Um, and we are, you know, dealing with, with individuals whose diets are really unhealthy um, for reasons that um, are not due to um, deficits as such, but um, in terms of quality of the diet. Yeah. So really, it was a win-win-win, because even though you didn't start from the health perspective, it was one of those pleasant, I guess, unpleasant in some ways, because, you know, we all feel that doctor guilt of like, man, I wish I would have known I could help my patients in this way. But then at the same time, like, wow, so not only is it good for the animals, but it's also good for humans, <laughs> you know, and good for the planet. That's like a win, win, win. That's great. I'd love to hear more about how it impacted specifically your clinical practices, though. You're both oncologists. And, you know, it's one of those things that I feel like there's this two opposite worlds when it comes to nutrition and oncology. One, you hear a lot of people talking about how diet, you know, you have to think about your diet because it may increase your risk of cancer. And we talk about, you know, carcinogens in our food and that kind of thing. But then you hear a lot from patients and families that once a patient's been diagnosed with cancer, they're told, eat whatever you want. So I'd love to know first from Zara how it's impacted your clinical practice as an oncologist. Hugely. And as the time has gone on, I've realized all the additional ramifications and benefits as well. So we know from the studies that um, plant-based nutrition, we have you know fabulous prospective cohort studies. We also have randomized control studies now in this setting. So we know that plant-based nutrition will reduce your incidence of certain cancers. Uh, we know that 40% of all cancers are preventable through modifiable lifestyle factors. We know also that Having a plant-based diet and good lifestyle measures can reduce your chance of dying after a diagnosis of cancer. We know that if you have a comorbidity like diabetes or autoimmune disease, you're at increased risk of getting cancer. And all these lifestyle measures can help that too. Unfortunately, with the treatments of cancer, you are more at risk of you know, those sequelae of treatments like cardiovascular disease or uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Again, all of those lifestyle factors will help mitigate that. And um, so there's all that prevention. There's also all the improvement in your outcomes. Uh, and then there's the other piece of it that unfortunately most people don't know that if you have one cancer, you're at increased risk of developing a second cancer above the general population. So we're also trying to prevent that next cancer from forming. Um, so there's, there's so many benefits that it really makes no sense to tell people to have a pro-inflammatory diet during their uh, treatments. And, um, you know, in addition, there's these other benefits that we're seeing now, you know, with the research with the microbiome that, you know, if you have a good uh, microbiome or, or, or the way we, we want the microbiome to be with lots of biodiversity and the certain bacteria that, that give us our short chain fatty acids, that you can actually modify how you respond to the treatment. So the early studies are showing us that treatments such as immunotherapy, if you're having more fiber, more plant-based foods, you will respond better and your survival may be better as well. So there's all these points to bring up. And the recommendations that we give to our patients, if you look at the studies that have looked at this, for example, in the US, the, uh, there was a study that looked I think, it, I can't remember exactly how many cancer institutions they looked at uh, to see 20 something and only four of them were giving nutrition recommendations during the treatment and they were not consistent in any way. So we're not good at giving guidelines during treatment 
about what to eat and it's consistently inconsistent. Uh, so we have to change that. I, I'm super lucky. I have two amazing dietitians that I work with at the Cancer Centre, one of whom is Michelle Fideli, who co-founded Plant Based Canada with me. She's 100% plant-based. So I know when I send my patients to her, they will get really great advice. But most places are not in that you know lucky situation that I am in. Yeah, and that's kind of what I encounter too from what I hear from people is, like I said, they're mostly told, oh, don't worry about it, just eat, you know, which is, yeah, we want to eat. And I think what we typically think of as cancer patients is you're nauseated, your appetite is down, you just need to make sure you're getting enough calories, which yes, is important. But I don't think enough people are told the power behind their choices. Obviously, it's everybody's individual choice what they're going to eat. But I think if more people knew this could augment this could help your treatment i mean it may not be the only thing you have to do but if you're going to have to get this treatment anyway let's make it work better we can do these things to make it work better so that's interesting information shereen anything else you wanted to add about that how it's affected your practice yes my scenario is slightly different from zara's in that i look after people with lymphoma so less common um, than the solid tumors and we don't have that abundance of data that necessarily is so clear cut about you know a diet and impact on on outcomes and long term survival so what but what i find is that obviously people with lymphoma generally are older like with most cancers and they have um my patients have additional comorbidities so virtually everyone has hypertension high cholesterol type 2 diabetes some sort of cardiac history and um that then impacts the type of treatments that i can offer because as zara mentioned you know a lot of the the the, me the medications and traditional chemotherapies we give are cardiotoxic so it can damage their um heart but also we are more moving to sort of tablet approach um, to some of our chronic lymphomas and those um, targeted treatments um, are, ha are now seen to increase the risk of um, hypertension atrial fibrillation so it's more about managing the comorbidities supporting people to need less medication and then of course to live better longer better quality life after they've completed treatment so some of um, the lymphomas I treat are highly um, curable, you know, Hodgkin lymphoma is a triumph of, uh, for hematologists, you know, people, um, uh, uh, most people are cured, but um, their life expectancy is less compared to um, the age match population because um, they succumb earlier than they should to cardiovascular disease and second cancers. So it sort of comes into the um, sort of adjuvant types of um, uh, treatments that I can offer without sort of directly impacting um, the actual anti-lymphoma treatment. But I'm not so lucky as, as Zara, you know, my patients only get to see a dietitian if they're underweight, losing weight, not meeting their nutrient requirements. So um, unfortunately, people who've just got additional comorbidities, carrying um, too much weight, those sort of things won't have access to a dietitian in our publicly funded um, struggling um, healthcare service. Um, and I'm waiting for the day when there's going to be some data on hematological malignancies and the gut microbiome there's there is a bit for stem cell transplantation it's really interesting how um you know the health of the gut microbiome impacts um the the function of our t-cells and of course our t-cells are responsible for keeping the cancer in check but it's also in the setting of transplantation um responsible for causing the rejection reaction graft versus host disease and you know, if you bring that all together a healthier gut microbiome may be useful to um you know impact positively the action of the t-cells so we need more information, but I don't think you can go wrong by looking after your gut microbiome during um, cancer treatment. Yeah, wow, that's fascinating because I think when we think of cancer, everybody's afraid of cancer, right? And so thank God for y'all and what you do and that you're able to help people through this journey because it's people's greatest fear in a, in a lot of cases. But you're right, we focus on the cancer and what you're saying is that some of these people are cured but then they die of heart disease. So we do have to think about the whole person. We have to think about optimizing our diet and our lifestyle, not just for the cancer itself, but all the other things that are a very high cause of death. So we do wanna do whatever we can to survive this cancer, optimize our treatment for this cancer, but also once we surpass the cancer, not die of something else we could have potentially prevented with some of our choices. So that's great information. Thank you so much.
Y'all together wrote an amazing book called Eating Plant-Based, Scientific Answers to Your Nutrition Questions. I love that title too. It's just very straightforward and people know exactly what they're getting from it. Why did you write this book? So I will say that it was Shireen's idea to write a book. And um, she was so she is so ideally placed to write this because for a few years prior to the book, she's been writing a weekly plant based nutrition news review, which is incredible. And um, we use it to keep up to date. Uh, And so it was just the natural next step, I think, for Shireen to write a book. And I was so honored that she invited me along on the journey. And, uh, you know, working with Shireen is always great. We don't have enough opportunities because we live in on two continents. And, uh, you know, Shireen and I are very close as as well as with my younger sister. So any opportunity to work with our family is great. Um, And we wrote the book that we wanted to read 10 years ago. Um, And we wrote it in our particular learning style, which is the question and answer style. We'd read Gary Francione's book, Eat Like You Care. And that way of learning just, you know, blew our minds away. And uh, we had an exponential increase in our in our education on the vegan aspects. So we wanted to do the same for the health aspects. And there's so many wonderful books out there as well in plant-based nutrition. But we wanted to do it in this question and answer way because this was our also our lived experience. You know, these are the questions just like yourself. You'll get them. We all get them from our friends and family and um, colleagues at work. So we wanted to do it in that way. Um, so that was that was one reason. And we wanted to show that this is all very evidence-based. And, you know, Shireen's so good at that. And, um, you know, 60 pages of this, I think it's 60 pages are, is just a list of references at the back of the book. So um, that was very important to us to show that this is evidence-based uh, discussion we are having. Shireen, tell me how you started writing your newsletter and why, and what led you to the idea of the book? Yeah, well, as usual, Zara's understated her contribution to this. So the, just starting with the, the, the final bit you said, the idea for the book, I think it was me who wanted to write a book, but I think definitely the style of Q&A came from um, Zara. And then, you know, I don't know why I started writing two years ago. I think it was mainly because I was um, delivering a course, or I, I do deliver a course on plant-based nutrition at Winchester University. And I was becoming really overwhelmed by the amount of information out there, the amount of studies and papers I was downloading you know it's constant isn't it um see a new study you're like oh I must read this I'll download it I'll put it in my folder on my computer and then it's like oh it's forgotten and I can't remember where I read it and so it was just a way of organizing my thoughts actually um I think I think that's what how it started and I you know I would sort of make myself read four or five papers each week and I thought well let's summarize it um and it you know it's a good um it's it's a good thing to make yourself do because it, it is a skill that I've um, tried to acquire to write succinctly, which I think has really helped with with the book because most of us, you know, we listen to two minute segments of a of an advert or a podcast or something, and we might not spend the whole hour reading the paper or listening to the whole episode of something. So I, I sort of acquired a skill to be able to summarize succinctly. I hope, um, and that's kind of what's really helped me bring that to the book and then after two years of having sort of written you know recurrently about similar topics it felt like well may as well just have everything in one place because um you know like with all of us we're totally fed up of answering the same questions and also sometimes we want to refer back ourselves like I've I've dipped in and out of the book when I can't remember you know where where I found this reference or which study said this and and what have you so it's just a nice easy book to flick in and out of when you've got um a question somebody wants to ask and for us with them um, sort of our growing networks it's a nice thing to be able to recommend and, and I did want something that would appeal to health professionals because that's the audience we're trying to capture the interest of here certainly in the UK and with Zara in the in Canada just because um you know it's just not talked about enough in the National Health Service here in the UK and so it's sort of something that's credible with adequate references to appeal, hopefully, to the interested health professional. Yes. And I think it's great because I think as physicians, as y'all know, we're all so busy. We're working so hard to help our patients. We also have our families and, you know, life. It just gets overwhelming. So unless you have 
set aside time to specifically read the studies like you have, which yes, I have the exact same aspirations I've had for years. <laughs> I have not become <laughs> as organized as you, <laughs> maybe someday. Um, but it's nice to have a place where these things can be explained so we can communicate it to our patients. Because I think physicians, you know, we're kind of like lawyers in a way in that we don't want to just make stuff up. Like, you know, you have to, you have to put the evidence behind it. Otherwise we're probably not going to say anything, which is, I think what happens a lot with physicians. They're just probably just going to leave out the whole nutrition thing. If they're not feeling confident about what they're recommending, because they don't want to recommend something that's not evidence-based or may potentially be harmful. So I'd love to start with Zara and ask what's the most common question that you feel that you get about plant-based nutrition? So my commonest question, so I, I treat people who have breast cancer and gastrointestinal cancers, and I put aside 15 to 20 minutes for each at each new consultation to talk about lifestyle factors. And so as I launch into the plant-based area and I talk about the, you know, the benefits of beans and legumes and fruits and vegetables and whole grains, I get the question about soy uh, from 90% of the people that I see who have a diagnosis of breast cancer. And so that's my commonest question. It's the myth that won't die, as we know. And there's so much evidence behind its benefits. So um, I end up spending um, a lot of time time trying to debunk that. And we, as, as you will have found as well, we find this uh, myth is perpetuated by some of our health professionals as, yes. as well, because mm -hmm. those of us who trained, like myself, you know, you know, I've been practicing as a physician for 25 years. That was the teaching. Don't, don't eat soy if you have a diagnosis of breast cancer. So that's my commonest question. And I find that some people are very resistant to it, even if I hand over <laughs> the research. Here, look, there's like all these hundreds of, not hundreds, but there's so many studies uh, showing this. But um, that is my commonest question. Yes, I feel like soy fear is pervasive across all stages <laughs> because in pediatrics <laughs> I get the same thing but oh I thought soy isn't safe for children so um and you know I'm in pediatrics so I feel like that yeah that's a pretty common one thank you for that Shireen how about you yeah I have two that crop up often one is about fish um because you know the NHS guidelines recommend you know two portions of fish um a, a week and to be honest with the majority of my patients if they swapped out their red and processed meat for fish they would be better off so that takes time to sort of um navigate um and also dairy the whole dairy calcium thing comes up very very often with with people um who are going through treatments with cancer i use a lot of steroids you know people have osteopenia as potential side effects and you know, they'll see their GPs and it's like, well, make sure you have your calcium and then it um, turns into have your dairy rather than helpful sources of calcium. So I think those are the two common things that, that are tricky to unpick, to be honest. Yes. And fish is also one of those things. I mean, I live in the United States in the Pacific Northwest, which here you would typically think people have a little bit more access to fish and you know, the fish that are going to be higher in omega-3, like salmon and things like that. But even that, even here in this part of the country, I feel that people, if they do eat fish, it's not that type of fish and kids forget it. Like unless their, their parents are more like foodies or gourmet cooks, if they're going to get fish, it's just fried fish sticks. So really the fish that people are getting is not necessarily going to be the highest that's going to be an omega-3 anyway, but even then they're probably not getting that much fish. So what do you recommend if there's that recommendation there for fish? Do you tell people to replace it with something else or to take a supplement or to just not worry about it? Hey, I know you're busy running around trying to get all the things done and take care of everybody else, but I also know that you care about your nutrition and you wanna eat healthy too. One thing that makes healthy eating easier and delicious is having a yummy sauce to douse your grains and your beans and your veggies. I've finally found a delicious all-purpose sauce that you can keep in your pantry until it's ready to use. And y'all, it is so unique and scrumptious, a little smoky with some creamy, tangy, and just a little kick. It makes me dance in my chair. It's called Bernie Wild's Adventure Sauce, and you have a good reason to grab yourself a bottle or two right now. My listeners get 20% off their first order of $20 or more 
more and free shipping. Just use the code Dr. Yami, D-R-Y-A-M-I. Follow the link in the show notes or go to BernieWilds.com, B-U-R-N-Y-W-I-L-D-S.com. After you taste it, I wanna know what you think about the sauce. Do you love it as much as I do? Go get yourself a couple of bottles of Bernie Wilds Adventure Sauce right now to get your 20% off and free shipping by using the code Dr. Yami. Enjoy. Yeah, I think it's really individualized. I mean, you know, the overall problem in the UK is that most of our calories are coming from ultra processed foods, so no different from the US or or Canada. So, um, you know, just shifting people away from from ultra processed food has to be the kind of number one step and adding in, you know, whole foods. And as I say, unfortunately, um, you know, the, the UK is still eating quite a bit of red meat and the majority is processed meat. So, you know, any shift away from ultra processed foods and red meat is probably my main focus initially so I'm not going to say don't eat fish I'm just going to make it clear that you know we can make better choices and we all know that would be choosing beans and legumes as your source of protein but again the UK public don't eat beans at all other than baked beans so you know there's this funny statistic that 16% of children's vegetables come from pizza or baked beans crazy and one in 10 children don't even eat any vegetables every day so you know and some of these habits are obviously going to be translated into adulthood of course um so you know we're so away from that ideal diet that you know i'm not going to tell somebody not to eat fish but if i'm asked is fish healthy then i'm going to say you know the obvious thing which is well it depends what you're comparing it to and i would suggest you know starting to swap in or choose beans legumes etc and you know based on the cultural um, um background of uh, of the patients which is quite mixed in london where i work it might it's going to be easier for some than others to start cooking with with beans yes it's definitely something that some cultures need to deliberately learn how to do because here in the united states it's the same Um, for the traditional typical american family does not eat a lot of beans and but it's just not familiar with it they don't know how to cook them what to do with them how to integrate them and so i do spend a lot of my time educating people on how to integrate beans but you know, I'm a, I'm a bean pusher. So that's, I like doing that. <laughs> I love it. And, you know, you mentioned about the habits that kids have and that it'll translate into adulthood where I saw one study that showed that the diet of a child around five or six years old is very predictive of how they're going to eat as an adult. So it's true that whatever we can do to implement and practice those habits early on, even starting in pregnancy, is going to be a huge gift to our children. And I have a lot of parents that come in saying exactly that. I never liked vegetables. I'm still struggling to like vegetables. I want to do different for my child. And I'm like, great, this is what we do. Part of it, of course, is role modeling, but getting those vegetables in from pregnancy because that baby is starting to taste in the womb and then during lactation and first foods, getting those in over and over and over and over and over until you're red in the face offering vegetables. So great point. I'd love to know from each of you what question you wish people were asking instead of these questions. That's not an easy one. Um, I, I think uh, just... I would love people to understand that there is a benefit and then ask me, what shall I do? Because we have lots of advice on the easy wins and what people can do. And I actually, you know, my patients uh, who I treat who have breast cancer, many of them come very motivated. They've already looked into this and a common question uh, for both Shireen and I is, what shall I eat? How shall I help myself? So a lot of our patients are already primed for that. So I do get that a lot. And so that's nice. Shireen? I did find this a tricky question, actually. But I think I really wish that my colleagues would ask me why I 
follow a plant-based diet because they just don't seem as curious as I want them to be. You know, obviously all of us, once we've decided to go vegan or plant-based, just want to talk about it all the time. And like, I don't know, I just don't think people are curious enough. They're so sort of in their little zone of, of work and what they're doing. And I just wish, you know, people might ask, well, what do I eat? And, you know, do I miss anything? Or was it difficult? It's just, it's it, it's unusual. Um, and there's a handful of us in our workplace, which is quite a large hospital in, in London that uh, uh, sort of are, are vegan. But um, yeah, most people just sort of don't don't even ask, maybe because I, I don't advocate terribly well, and they'll know that I'll go off on one. But uh, yeah, sort of curiosity. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's interesting. I found, you know, I've done a lot of teaching to the public, like uh, cooking classes and things like that. And when I first started, I used to get really intimidated when people would ask a lot of questions and ask really hard questions. And that changed very quickly. Only after about a year or two of doing it, I realized that the people that asked the most questions were the people that were actually most likely to make a change. And so then I wasn't afraid of the question anymore because it wasn't that they were challenging me and like trying to say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm trying to disprove you. It wasn't like that. It was more like they were genuinely curious, but they were asking such good questions that you knew they were truly thinking about it and trying to decide for themselves, do I believe this? What's my past experience? How am I gonna be able to integrate this into my life? And then it was very predictable. After I had series of questions from a person, I would find out later that they made the transition. And I was like, okay, this makes sense. But you're right, I feel like there's probably two things. One, people see this way of eating as very extreme and as, like not even achievable to them. And so they don't even consider the possibility. It's like, yeah, there's no way. So I'm not even gonna think about that. It's like done, you know? And I think that there's also the group that's very afraid of the change. And so they're afraid to ask questions because they're afraid of delving into that place of uncertainty and change. But I think you, you have a point, Shireen, in that when people are asking the questions, they're engaged, they're considering it, and they're more likely to potentially make a change. I'd love to know what has surprised each of you the most as you were doing research for this book. And we can start with Zara. It's more the wonderful things I think that we found out as we explored this, because even when we started, we, we knew in, of course, the, the huge benefits of plant-based nutrition. And at that point, there was, you know, we didn't see any downside, but it was nice, you know, as you write, write the book, that that's in fact the case. And so two things for me, or really the main thing for me was the section on children. So, you know, recently we know there have been great studies that have come out looking at the impact and, and nutritional uh, profiles of children who follow a vegetarian, vegan and omnivore diet, for example, from Germany. So. These are, you know, great recent additions to the literature, and I have two children. I'm bringing them both up as vegan. They're, my eight-year-old has been vegan since birth, and my 13-year-old uh, is also vegan. So, of course, my my thoughts are, you know, am I am I doing them a disservice? You know, way back when, when I didn't know all the health benefits, was I doing them a disservice? Were they going to be short? I mean, I'm already five foot, so, you know, to, to disadvantage them anymore is terrible. So, um, you know, these questions... It was so great for me to look at those studies and see that, you know, those those studies from Germany show that the children are are not uh, lighter. They are the same height. They some they in many cases have a better nutritional profile. You know, better better lipid profile. So there seems to be no disadvantage from a well planned vegan diet. So I you know I love to see that. I love to be able to talk to people about that um, as well, because that's a very common question, of course, for our children, we hold them so close to us and we don't want to do anything that might negatively impact them. Yes. And that's exactly the journey I went through is that when I decided that I was going to stay plant-based, I took a little bit more time to understand more about how it impacts children, whether it would be safe for children. But even back then we've been plant-based for 11 years now. It didn't take me long to explore the research and be like, oh gosh, why didn't I know all of this? You know, it was like, it's like one of those things, your whole world changes and you feel like you were in the dark for so long, but I'm so glad that there continues to be more research to help reassure parents that 
it's okay to feed your kids more fruits and vegetables. <laughs> Good things are going to happen. <laughs> Shireen, how about you? What surprised you the most about doing the research for this book? Yeah, well, I, I was uh, um, pleasantly surprised uh, at the extreme, really, which is for elders, um, you know, how eating whole plant foods really can um, support aging, um, reduce your risk of frailty, and of course, meet your nutrient needs. Because sadly, I'm surrounded by quite a lot of folk at work who still um, sort of um, uh, support the narrative of meat, protein, for older people um and so it was it was really great to see that uh, even at the extremes of, of age there's been some a couple of recent studies you know showing superior to plant protein sources for prevention of frailty and then as you say the abundance of fruits and vegetables for um reducing inflammation oxidative stress etc et um and we have a we have a great um charity in the uk that specifically caters for um older people who have been following a vegan diet. And it's just really great to see those studies emerging that really support um, a healthy plant-based um, diet. There's, there's clearly nuances and, and we need um, nutritionist and dietetic support um, at times of illness and when things aren't going so well. But intrinsically, there doesn't seem to be any reason why older people can't meet all their nutrient requirements, including protein needs from a, a well-planned plant-based diet. Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? Join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you want to join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community. Yes, I love it. From obstetrics to geriatrics, there's an application for a whole food plant-based diet, right? And like you said, we still all have to be mindful. There's different requirements when you're growing a baby inside you. There might be different requirements when you're reaching those last few decades of life, but it's not impossible. And there's so many benefits. And I don't know if you've already covered that recent article that came out that was looking at the elderly population and the difference between animal protein and plant-based protein. So yeah, I think that all is very reassuring. And I think what happens as physicians, but also as the public, is we focus on all the things that could go wrong instead of all the things that could go right, you know? And so we're like, oh, because this one thing, I'm not going to do that even though my current diet may not really be helping me feel the way I want to feel and live that best life that I want to live. Okay, we'll start with Shireen. I'd love to know, this is, this is your moment to shine, okay? So <laughs> in your opinion, what is the most compelling benefit of eating a plant-based diet? Good question. So many benefits, but I think it has to come down to cardiometabolic health. Um, you know, I think that's where we have the strongest evidence. It's already established in the guidelines. Um, you know, in the UK, especially in our um, South Asian populations, you know, from the Indian background, myself and Zara from, you know, they they those illnesses are really taking away years from our, our lives. And um, so I think just if that's the only thing it could do, the fact that it can keep your blood pressure down, reduce your kind of, you know, visceral fat, risk of diabetes, etc., then I'm I'm happy with that. And and I I think that alone should be a reason to be advocating for a more plant-based diet. I love it. And that makes sense because it's our number one killer is cardiovascular disease, right? And diabetes is not far from that. And of course, it's all related because we can't really separate them completely. But yeah, I love that. How about you, Zara? Um, I, I would echo that absolutely. And cancer, of course, is the worldwide the second leading cause of death. But in Canada, it's overtaken and it's now the primary cause of death. And we know the absolute benefits um, of plant-based nutrition for cancer too. But I would I would say that the main benefit for me, the reason I think I do this, the top of my list, all, all those other reasons absolutely are there and the reasons I do it. But the top one is 
um, compassion. It's the compassionate way to be because it's the best way to look after ourselves. It's the best way to look after the planet and the um, and the non-human animals that we live with. And that to me is the bottom line. It's the most ethical and compassionate way forward. Love it. So beautiful. Well, what do you wish more healthcare providers knew? The power of plants. I mean, it just seems so simple, doesn't it? You know, I just wish that in my hospital, I could stop them serving processed red meat and just swap it out for beans. Um, but it's just too difficult, you know. Um, so, yeah, a true understanding of what could be achieved for, um, you know, the population you're caring for just by addressing dietary risk factors. And of course, you know, it's never going to be just diet alone. And it's not always a choice for everyone, but um, supporting people to make that healthy choice. And that starts with education, doesn't it? Yes, I love it. How about you, Zara? So again, I'd echo and agree with everything Shireen says. And I would also add um, that I wish that health professionals would see health in a more holistic way, that, you know, our current crises, our ecological climate health crises are all completely interlinked at their root causes. And, um, you know, our food and agricultural system are a huge uh, contributor to all of our interconnected crises. And I think as health professionals, we're uniquely placed to be advocates in our institutions and at policy level for this. And, you know, the great David Katz has said, you know, he, I think he said, I'm paraphrasing probably, that to one cannot rightly call oneself a health professional if you don't frequently and fervently advocate for the health of the planet. And if you look at, you know, the definition of planetary health, it is the health and well-being of humans and the environments on which we depend. And that interconnectedness is so important. And we are so narrow in our outlook, I feel, as health professionals. And the impacts of all these crises that we're talking about are, you know, global warming and, um, you know, environmental destruction. And they're going to have an impact on, you know, more droughts and, you know, humans uh, moving and, you know, creating refugees and creating pollution that's going to increase our respiratory disorders. It's going to change the, um, you know, in infectious diseases, epidemiology that we're seeing. It's going to absolutely directly impact on our individual health. So we have to be part of this conversation. And I see, I hear a lot of our health professionals saying that, no, we are just for individual health. And I, I don't think that that's the right way. And even things like antibiotic resistance, you know, our food and health system, our food and agricultural system is a huge contributor to that with the antibiotics used in the farming system. We are fast approaching a post, you know, post-antibiotic era, we, we have um, studies projecting that millions of people will die due to antibiotic resistance in the not-too-distant future. So, you know, I think, and there's been multiple calls for action uh, from this, from the World um, Organization for Family Physicians. Not that long ago, over 200 editors-in-chiefs from the various journals put out a call to action. Health professionals must be part of this conversation. So I would I would love to see that, but that again, as Shireen said, it, it starts with education, and we're not yet educated in that. So education, and then get active, get proactive. Yes, I agree. We do have to be more vocal about these things, because I think a lot of people don't realize how interrelated things like this, these things are, because you know, we're busy people, we're going about our lives, we're raising our kids, we're doing our recreation, and we're not realizing the complexity of everything that goes into well-being. Even just thinking about one of my big things is to fight against weight stigma and knowing the complexity of body size. Body size is absolutely affected by our environment and the different toxins that we have in our environment. And like you said, all of these things, it's just going to come to a head at once and we're going to have an exponential increase in everything, <laughs> you know, and infections yeah. and all kinds of other chronic conditions and, and all of these things that because it's all interrelated. So we cannot just ignore everything else and say, oh, we just, we're just doctors prescribing medicines because 
it's going to affect our practice. It's gonna affect the health of our patients. So I agree with you 100%. Well, this has been great. I wanna hear more about each one of you individually so that our listeners can get to know you a little bit more. So Shireen, I'd love to know what personal habit you're most proud of and why. I find these personal questions so tricky, but um, I don't know if it counts as a habit, but I guess everyone would um, describe me as being organized and I hope um, people see me as somebody who's able to complete a task. So I am one for routine, get things done, you know, have a have a system, don't leave much to chance. So so that's my kind of uh, personality trait uh, rather than habit, I guess. <laughs> I love it. Well, I would say that we all agree that you are able to complete many tasks. So (laughs) congratulations. Very good. And yeah, like we were talking about earlier, it requires organization to achieve a lot of these things and to be consistent with them. So I'm grateful that you have that habit. Thank you so much. How about you, Zara? Well, I would say first that, you know, as Shireen's sister and her family, we totally recognize this and none of us even then even knowing you and these habits that you've had for for decades since you were young we still don't know how much you do how you do how much you do it's quite (laughs) incredible um so I'm going to give a much more fluffy answer I hate exercise I'm really happy and proud of myself that I've been exercising for the last few years and Shireen and Layla bought me a exercise hula hoop so learning to do that just put a big smile on my face the same smile that I got when I got my diploma in lifestyle medicine uh, (laughs) certification from the American College of Lifestyle Medicine so I think hula hooping was my is my one oh I love it that sounds like so much fun okay I have to admit I did try hula hooping because I, I actually love exercise and I call it joyful movement so I love moving my body all kinds of different ways I tried hula hooping once but I got bruises all over my hips So tell me, Zara, about your hula hooping (laughs) practice. Did you also get bruises and how long does it take to get past that stage? Yes, no, absolutely. But I was so determined that I was going to acquire this skill. I don't know why, but it just stuck in my head. So I just kept going. It took took me about two months to do it but I just kept going and it's so worth it. Try again. (laughs) So how often do you hula hoop now? I try and do a little bit every day. Um, so I just try and do a little bit. It just always puts my a smile on my face, makes me feel happy. And I don't feel like it's exercise. <laughs> yeah, of course. Do you put music on and kind of just like move to the music or, or like, how does that work? Or you just yeah, get up and just on my get mood, your hoop? <laughs> that's it. Yeah. You know, I've got it. I've got it just by my bed now. You know, the, the habits that you make, you've just got to put it close, close by you so that, you know, even when you're walking past, you might do it for a couple of minutes. That's so cool. Well, to all the listeners, you can go online, Amazon, and find these exercise hula hoops. And it's like a whole thing. Like thing people are doing this. And it really does make you feel like a kid again. But they're weighted. And so you you do have to kind of get into the habit of doing it and acquire it. So I will, I'll try again since I haven't thought about that in such a long time. But I still have <laughs> that hula hoop in the back of my closet somewhere. So I'm going to try again and see what happens. So thank you for that. And I'd love to know each of your morning routines. You can start with Shireen. Thank you. Um, well, not terribly exciting. It's one of two. It depends whether I'm going into the hospital or not. So on the hospital days, it's just a mad rush to get get myself ready and out of the door onto quite a long train commute. So a cup of coffee out the door um, and catch up on emails on the train. On the days I don't have to do that, it's um, quite early rising and it's not made, um, I, I can't change that habit because I have two dogs that also now get up um, really early wanting their breakfast. So it's uh, breakfast for the dogs, um, a cup of coffee for, for me, and then about an hour later we have our, our morning walk, which is always lovely. Oh, that sounds great. Great. How about you, Zara? I'm the same as any working mum. So it's always a mad rush to get us all out in time with the right things, make sure that the right child has the right lunchbox, which happens regularly, wrongly. Um, so that, that's my mornings mostly. And if I have a non-patient facing day that I can stay at home a little bit longer before uh, starting work, um, then I'll, I'll pop down to the elliptical and do half an hour in front of my favorite Netflix program at the moment. I love it. The realities of busy lives of doctors and kids and dogs and all of that. Well, thank you both so much for your time today. Thank you for everything that you do. And most of all, thank you so much 
for the love and compassion and determination and passion that you each have in your hearts. It just lights me up to know that there's people out there in the world like you that inspire me and motivate me to keep going and to be part of this movement. So thank you so much. I would love it if each of you can tell my listeners where they can connect with you. And if you wanna tell them about any of the other things that you've started, where they can find that, that would be great. We can start with Shireen. Thank you. Well, everything I do is on our website called plantbasedhealthprofessionals.com and there's links to all our social media uh, pretty much under the same names, plant-based health professionals. So, um, and on there, there's some, uh, most of the resources are free. So we've got amazing fact sheets that um, doctors and other health professionals love to download for their patients. We have a free 21-day plant-based health um, challenge. Um, it's daily emails and videos and, you know, lots of recipes from diverse cultures. Um, and we do fortnightly webinars, which are free for people to to tune into. And it would sort of be daytime in the US if your US audience wants to check them out. Um, so yeah, just have a look full of articles and resources, mostly for free. Um, so everyone's welcome to take a look. Awesome. Thank you. Zara? So our activities of Plant-Based Canada, we really have two main ones. We do a yearly Canadian plant-based nutrition conference. Our third one is coming up very shortly, virtually uh, this time because of COVID, but hopefully in person as we move forward. And that's a conference to uh, educate the public and health professionals, uh, hopefully at uh, very reasonable prices. We wanted to make it accessible to everybody. And then our second main um, activity is our Plant-Based Canada podcast. So we wanted to highlight the great work of our Canadians who are already doing amazing work uh, in Canada um, because, you know, we hear about uh, wonderful people in the U.S. like yourself, but there didn't seem to be a platform for the Canadians and to showcase them. So that's that's the purpose of the podcast and, and the conference as well. And our website is www.plantbasedcanada.org and you can find uh, our uh, social media at plantbasedcanada.org, our Facebook and Instagram. And if you want to sign up for our newsletters, you can sign up on our website. Awesome. Beautiful. Thank you for that. And then your book is called Eating Plant-Based, Scientific Answers to Your Nutrition Questions. And you can find that anywhere online. And last question for you is, what advice do you have for people that are still on the fence about trying a plant-based diet? Where can they start? Shireen. Oh, well, I would, um, I, I would say, you know, the first thing is to just find your own reason for why you want to do it, because you'll never stick to it unless you've got your own motivation, like with any habit. So, um, you know, be ready to know why you want to do it and then join one of the amazing free challenges. I mean, at the moment, it's No Meat May, so you can sign up for that. And then obviously we'd say sign up for our 21 day plant based health challenge and it will cover all the sort of um, everyday questions um, and encourage you to keep going with all the amazing recipes uh, and resources that it that's attached with, with that. Beautiful. Zara? I would echo all of that again. Um, and I would try and explore with them why they're on the fence. And often, you know, you've, you've mentioned this already, it's they find people find it too difficult or overwhelming or um, and usually that's that's the reason. So if they've understood the benefits, but they're still on the fence, that's the reason. And you can just talk about very easy swaps that they can do. And I, I say, you know, if you do some of the things like you know, just have a fruit for a snack, or if you just swap your dairy milk for soy milk in your oatmeal, you'll barely notice you're making the changes. So different people have different personalities. Some people want to jump in all the way, um, and there's benefits to that. And some people want to do it more slowly, and and that's fine too. Love it. Dr. Shireen and Zara Kassam, thank you so much for all your work. Thank you for writing this book. And I hope that you both have a very plantastic day. Thank you for everything you do and for having us on. We've really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for me too. Wow, what a great episode. I really love these sisters. They have so much compassion and I love the work that they're doing. And it's so amazing that they each are launching movements in their respective locations and they're just doing such great work. So I'm so grateful for them. If you're able to connect, if you're in Canada, definitely connect to the organization. If you're in the UK, definitely connect there. But even if you're in other countries, those resources are available online. That's the magnificent thing about the internet. Here are my takeaways. I have four takeaways from this episode. One, 
There are multiple benefits of a plant-based diet, human health, planetary health, and compassion of animals. Two, diet and lifestyle really do matter for both cancer prevention and treatment. What we eat and how we live can even help augment cancer treatment, but it also helps decrease the risk of chronic disease after cancer remission. So it really does matter. It matters before, during, and after your cancer journey or cancer experience. Number three, curiosity is a good thing. So we have found through this conversation and what Shireen has also experienced is that whenever you're thinking about things, you're asking questions, you're curious. So think about your diet, think about your lifestyle and ask the questions that are going to inspire change. Number four, don't be afraid to start. Just get started, get started imperfectly and tailor it to your personality. Whether you wanna go slow and just take it one little piece at a time or whether you wanna jump right in, do what's best for you. I hope that you enjoyed this episode, veggie lovers. Thank you for coming back week after week. I appreciate you so much. I will see you again next week. Have a very plantastic day. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.